Blog Talk Radio. Guys, Guys Radio. This is your host, Robert Manny, welcoming you to our, looks like, 344, is it 345th podcast? I don't know. It's quite a few, and it's a good one tonight. We've got a special guest. His name is Mark Gober, a venture capitalist turned author and conscious thinker. He's got a book called An End to Upside Down Thinking. It's about consciousness, quantum physics, materialism and it gets into uh what are we all about you know some could argue that we're we're nothing we're just consciousness and that's it and uh, we're we're using a material form to get around but that's all we are consciousness that's it so anyhow we're going to get into all of that uh i know mark has been on the podcast circuit these days i was checking out his facebook page and he's all over the place so maybe we'll throw him a couple of curveballs tonight couple of conscious curveballs and talk about some other stuff but we'll get into the book and we'll get into his journey and uh, I think it's going to be a good show as you might have noticed if you're following me I've been doing a heck of a lot of guys guys radio recently and that's because uh, kind of uh, the show is morphing from uh, strictly podcast on blog talk radio iTunes Stitcher TuneIn radio and all of our podcasts are on uh, iTunes. So if you want to support us, rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. You can also pick up my novel. It started the whole thing out. The Guy's Guy's Guide to Love. Uh, you pick it up on Amazon, any of the e-tailers, physical or regular book. My blog is uh, robertmanny.com. And it's got over 300 blog posts of all about life, love, and the pursuit of happiness. All my kind of musings through the lens of a guy's guy, and it could be about relationships, dating, metaphysical stuff, spirituality, health, wellness, sports, entertainment. We just keep putting things out there for people who are seeking, looking for answers, looking for more than we usually get. I always say that if you really want to get the answers, the place to look is inside, because most of the answers are there, and uh, we just have to tap into it. So what's been happening in my world? Well, as I mentioned, a lot of shows. I did a show Saturday. I'm doing pre-recorded interviews for the uh, – we're on KCAA now in uh, Southern California on, on Wednesday nights. And uh, we'll soon be on iHeartRadio also nationwide. So the, the brand is – and the show is growing, and I'm very appreciative. And uh, I really like helping out and getting the information out to everybody and let them determine, hey – I'm vibing with this or, hey, uh, you know what? Interesting, not for me. But I think everybody's seeking, looking for a little bit more, particularly guys nowadays, because, you know, we really have been uh, putting the crosshairs these days with men where women are on this straight trajectory towards uh, long overdue recognition and achievement. Guys somehow are kind of in the crosshairs somewhere between the MMA and manscaping. And not many people know what guys are all about. This is a time where it's never been. Uh, better for guys to be whoever they want to be, but it's also a time where it's never been less clear who men really are. 
So I think we can define ourselves. And and when you step back and look at the situation, if you are real, if you're an authentic person, you have integrity and uh, you have emotional intelligence and you're strong, but in an unassuming way and you're confident in a casual way and you're fun and you get along with uh, men and women, then you're a guy's guy. And it's a great time to be alive, uh, regardless of the fact that um, you know, you've got some pressures on men as to our roles have changed. Women don't need us as much for, you know, the, you know, support the, the financial, the financial part as much. And, um, and also they can stand up for themselves, which is great. So the dynamic has changed and it could be very freeing for men. So I, I advise everybody to, uh, keep an open mind and embrace it. I, I talked to a lot of men, uh, ex- male experts on masculinity, the new masculinity, and there was a lot of anger about, you know, toxic masculinity. How dare people say that? And this, uh, you know, poisoned masculinity, and uh, we have to be strong. And look at all the great things men have done. But I, I think we know that. I think that's not the issue. The issue, it's not about you. It's not about us. The issue is really about. Uh, recognizing uh, all the great things that women have done and have been, they've been repressed and under underappreciated. So let's get over ourselves and uh, use this time to listen and then step together with the ladies and make this a better world. At least that's my point of view. Here we are in New York city. It is January, the end of January. It is like what you would call the, not quite the dead of winter, but it's in that area where I always haven't been here for so many years. I, I, I know the calendar and the weather like the back of my hand. And these from like January 15th to February 15th, that's the coldest time in the year. That's right in the bullseye of cold weather. And we're going to get some an Arctic freeze coming in later this week. Um, we have a flu bug, kind of a stomachy weird thing going around where you get it for about a day. My son started to have it and then he was okay. And then he went to school today and then I got a call now, I was working from home today. I had to go pick him up because he had his head on his desk. Yet when I picked him up, he was fine. And he came home, he ate dinner, and everything was cool. Yet my wife, she came down with something yesterday, and she was out. She slept the entire day. Like I'm t- talking about all day. And then again today, she didn't go to work. She stayed in bed the entire day. And my wife is not like that unless she's really wiped out. So got to keep myself strong for the fam. You know what I mean? So uh, what else is happening? Hey, this is uh, this is Super Bowl week, and you know what? This year I've heard nothing about the Super Bowl. You know, some of the morning shows and all of that, you hear some scuttlebutt, but they haven't really broken it down yet. I guess it's going to start since this is Monday, probably when the teams arrive in Atlanta, where they're going to play the game. So much of it has been about. You know, the Patriots, again, everybody counted them out, and here they are. And then the Rams, they don't deserve to be there because of that uh, that non-call against, uh, their cornerback against the saints. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that Roger Goodell, he, he, the commissioner of the NFL, he called up, uh, Sean McVeigh. I think it's Sean Payton, the, uh, saints coach, uh, supposedly they had a private conversation about that, but no, no message, no statement c- coming out to everybody else. And you think a guy's supposedly making like 40, million a year would at least come out to all the fans and say, Hey, you know, we messed up. This is what happened. This is what we're going to do in the future. Uh, we're going to talk about changing the rules. So there can be challenges within the last two minutes of the game. 
Then they found out, but he didn't. And then they found out today that three or, or four, three or four of the refs in that championship game uh, were from Southern California. So they're like, oh, how do you make a bad thing worse? So anyhow, let's break down the game real quick, and then we'll take a break. We'll bring our special guest, Mark Gober, out. Okay, I see it this way. It is the Patriots had those two great games in a row. Um, in the playoffs, they crushed the Chargers uh, out in the cold up at Foxborough, and then they they went out to Kansas City, where it was even colder, and they beat the you know Kansas City's a w- weird team because they're all offense and the kind of a suspect defense, and they had a very very young quarterback who was fabulous this year, but you know in the big game he didn't uh, come up that big, and uh, you know I think the unsung heroes of the New England Patriots are this year with the offensive line. Great protection for Brady. Doesn't have a lot of weapons. He throws to Julian, El- or Julian Edelman all the time. Gronk has been, you know, not as big a weapon as he's been in, been in the past, but he had a couple of big catches at the end of the uh, Chiefs game. And then on the other side, you've got the, uh, the Rams, who Jared Goff is a young quarterback. He's kind of stepped up, and I think he'll do fine in the Super Bowl. They have a superstar running back, uh, Todd Gurley, and uh, he's, he got hurt during his, the last uh, games of the year and kind of been in and out. He played part of the last two games but was really not super effective against Dallas or against the Saints. And they, had, they picked up C.J. Anderson, a running back, kind of off the scrap heap, if you will. And uh, he's been like a little bowling ball running through the line and racking up yardage. So I'm actually thinking that, you know, they say the Rams don't deserve to be there and the Patriots are, they never count them out and they're the greatest ever. I'm going to take the Rams 27-24, and I'll tell you why. I think they've got a better kicker. I know St- Stephen Gakowski, I think is his name, on the Patriots. He, everybody loves him, and he's been there many years. I know one of the guys in my fantasy football league drafts him like in the seventh round or something every year. Of course, this guy never makes the playoffs. But um, I actually think the kicker on uh, and the special teams on the Rams are better than New England. And special teams is a factor. The Rams have a great, uh, great field goal kicker, a great punter. They've got good return guys. I think their defense up the middle is much different than Kansas City. They're very strong with Aaron Donald and the, the Monica Sue. And they've got some edge rushers, Dante Fowler, I think. Dexter Fowler, Dante Fowler, I don't know, the guy they picked up from the Jaguars. And they have uh, some other guys, linebackers, that are good. And I think they are going to uh, get through. And I think they're going to put some pressure on Tom Brady. I think that the Patriots had a couple of great games. I think they'll have a decent game. Uh, they're not going to, you know, they're not going to get nil since it's there. This crew is kind of ninth time there. Uh, but I think the Rams, uh, their coach is very sharp, as, of course, Belichick is also. But I think the Rams are going to pull it out. I, I think they're going to put put it together, have a good game. They looked super strong against the Cowboys. They really were surprising because people were picking the Cowboys, and they just got run over. And uh, so I, I'm going to say that the Rams, uh, I think they have better personnel, and I think they're going to put the game together that they need to put together to win. So that's my pick. Anyhow, let's take a very quick break, and then we'll bring on our special guest, Mark Gober, and we're going to talk about upside-down thinking. You're listening to the Guys Guy Radio. 
Woo. All right. We're back, Guys Guys Radio. So let's talk about our special guest and get into it. Um, Mark Gober is this gentleman's name, this writer, this venture capitalist. Uh, he's done a wonderful job. His worldview was turned upside down in late 2016 when he was exposed to world-changing science. After researching extensively, he wrote An End to Upside-Down Thinking. He wanted to introduce to the general public cutting-edge ideas in an effort to encourage a much-needed global shift in scientific and existential thinking. He's a senior member of Sherpa Technology Group in Silicon Valley. He worked as an investment banker in New York, and I think he started like the day after uh, the crash in 2008. He's been quoted in Bloomsburg Businessweek and elsewhere, and he's authored internationally published articles. He graduated magna cum laude from Princeton where he was captain of the tennis team also. So interesting guy. I'm thrilled to have him on the show. So let's welcome him, welcome him right now. Good evening, Mark. Welcome to Guys Guys Radio. Thanks so much for having me. Great. Hey, uh, interesting book. Um, maybe just to break it down, do you think that um, are we just consciousness and then we have these physical bodies and is that what's really driving things versus the you know, the, the thinking that it's all materialism that uh, is like the brain, a processor and, and uh, versus the, 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 the current thinking, which is, you know, everything material has to be matter based and you have to think something in your brain before it becomes real. And but it leaves so many holes. And I think you've driven a truck through it. So why don't you talk a little bit about your story and then kind of what was the fundamental aha moment where you said, I've got to write this book because things aren't what they appear to be. Sure. So it started for me, at least on this path of exploring consciousness, in August of 2016. And I wasn't looking for this explicitly. I was listening to health podcasts, and I, the next one in the queue when I was listening to Extreme Health Radio uh, was a woman who described having psychic abilities, and she talked about working with energy and communicating with entities that are not physical. And I had never really heard about any of those ideas before in a serious way beyond science fiction or movies. Um, but I, I was interested in what she had to say. And then she mentioned her own podcast, which is called Healing Powers, which I then decided to listen to. And she interviewed other people that had, had similar experiences. So after hearing enough people independently describe these accounts that just didn't make any sense to me, I became really interested and decided to just start looking at the science. And then I realized there was a whole body of science that I was never taught and that which is it's kind of considered fringe in certain circles, but when I put everything together, I realized that it answered many of the questions that I had always had. So I researched for about a year, um, not with any intention of writing a book. It was just a personal interest, a real passion. And then I decided in the summer of 2017 that I wanted to summarize my research and put it on paper. And that is the book, An End to Upside Down Thinking. Now, uh, have you uh, experienced, um, you've gone through a lot of things in the book where, you know, remote viewing and um, time and uh, the butterfly effect and precognitive dreams and, uh, you know, animals communicating with each other. You've done the research on this. Have you experienced any of these things or, uh, you know, psych anything psychic or intuitive uh, powers? I, I interview people in this metaphysical area, spiritual people, channelers. I had Paul Seligon, a very famous channel a couple of weeks ago. He's been on the show four or five times. So I'm uh, very familiar with people who have these gifts. Have you, and they claim, as I think you kind of claim in a book that we all have these powers inside. It's just a matter of unpacking them. 
what, what has been your personal experience since you've kind of had your aha moment that, you know, it's not materialism, it's more consciousness driven life that we lead, live, lead. On a, pers- yeah, on a personal level, it's been subtle. And that's actually what many of the studies show that, that we all seem to have these abilities, but they're statistical in nature in that you have to like run the numbers to show that it's something that's happening beyond chance. But I've had a number of kind of weird synchronicities or like knowing things would happen before they happen. Uh, I think on a personal level, the most extreme examples have been when I've worked with people who have psychic abilities or people that channel or mediums, things like that, people that, that have really harnessed these abilities. And th- especially in the beginning of my exploration, when I was doing kind of the scientific research and on mm-hmm. one side, I decided to work with some of these people on the other, just, just to see if they could, if, if what their claims uh, were, if that aligned with the research. And I found that many of those people were able to know things about me that I could not explain at all. So I haven't had, I don't channel personally, I'm not a medium, but I've had maybe subtle intuitions that have come up much more since I started my research. You know, some say uh, I take a spiritual, um, kind of like you, that I, I kind of got introduced to it and things started to, to happen. And now it's been a while that I've been doing it. And I'm in a spiritual enfoldment class. And um, I find that the more the time you work with spirit, if you will, and other people who are doing the same thing, the more your powers kind of uh, begin to get revealed. So I kind of think I want to get your take on this, that we do all have these powers, but most of it is buried by whatever distraction, um, materials, uh, materialism type of thinking, the culture we live in, how, how metaphysical thinking is frowned upon in today's day and age and t- until recently, because I think things are changing now. And I think your book is going to be a great um, key to unlock that for a lot of people, because I think it could change our lives in a very positive way. What are your thoughts on that, Mark? Well, thank you for saying that. That was my hope in, in writing the book. And I agree with you that, that I think the abilities can be unlocked, but we're, we're not taught to believe that they're real. And that's one of the things that really shocked me when I started my research is I, I couldn't believe that these phenomena were real and that they applied to me, and, and yet I never knew about them. So I think a big part of the problem is, is a lack of acceptance or acknowledgement of these phenomena. And I think once we start to open up to their possibility, things begin to unfold. Mm-hmm. Well, you did a really good job of just laying everything out, summarizing each chapter for the layman uh, reader, and then um, proving, you know, showing the research that has a, a substantive proof um, to quantify the, you know, some of the things that you, you're, you're stating in the book. So you did a great job with that. For our listeners, if you could, let's, let's break it down and make it real simple. Tell us what materialism is and then what the, your theory is on consciousness and how that's different than materialism, which has been kind of the way we've been thinking for the, in America probably since our birth as a nation. The materialism is a, a scientific philosophy which says the following, basically. The universe started 13.8 billion years ago with an event that's typically called the Big Bang. And the Big Bang started this physical universe by filling the universe with physical material that we call matter. So like my chair is made out of atoms of matter. This is why it's called materialism, because we start with material. In this big universe, when you have lots of pieces of matter floating around, you're bound to end up with interactions between those pieces of matter, and we call that chemistry. 
So in this big universe, we started with matter. Now we have chemistry. And when you have enough random chemical reactions in this huge universe, chance tells us that eventually we'll end up with a type of molecule that can replicate itself. And that's like DNA. So DNA ends up on Earth, which leads to the evolution of a biological organism like a human being, which develops a brain. And then from the brain comes our consciousness. And what I mean by consciousness is the subjective inner experience that we all have. So when I say that I'm speaking right now, that I, that awareness, that's not physical, but it's there, that's what I mean by consciousness. And mm-hmm. in summary, materialism says that matter creates consciousness through a material brain. And that is precisely the thinking that I now regard to be upside-down thinking. And the, what I propose as an alternative, which is becoming increasingly popular in, in various circles, is to say that we can leave the, the material stuff, we can leave chemistry and biology and even brains. That, we don't change that. We just shift the placement of consciousness. So instead of saying consciousness comes at the very end, that consciousness is just a byproduct that comes out of the brain. Let's move consciousness to the very beginning and say that consciousness is fundamental and that everything in this material world, including chemistry and biology and even brains, those are all just occurring within a consciousness that exists beyond space and time. So the implications there would be um, that uh, we don't die because we're consciousness, right? Exactly. So it, this model, just without even looking at the evidence, if consciousness is more fundamental than physical matter, then consciousness isn't produced by or dependent upon matter or a body. So when the body dies, consciousness simply is transitioning. It's not, it's not disappearing. Mm-hmm. And then the brain then uh, would be kind of, I guess, redefined as a, 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 like a processor. Is that, is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it, that the brain is, is certainly related to consciousness. And that's an important point because we know from neuroscience that if you, we can measure certain parts of the brain that are very strongly correlated with the experience that we have. So like if you stimulate the part of the brain that's responsible for vision, we know the person's vision will change. So there's this tight correlation. You change the brain, the conscious states shift in a similar way. The way I think about that happening is, is not because the brain's producing consciousness, but the brain is processing it, like you said, that consciousness isn't existing in the brain exclusively, but the brain is processing something that exists well beyond our body and almost filtering or receiving it from outside the body. Got it. Um, so what then, Mark, are the implications for how we live collectively uh, from your hypothesis and what you've kind of proven. I think you've done a great job. Thank you. I think there are two categories of, of understanding human potential. One is the psychic phenomenon, which you and I have discussed, and there's lots of evidence for that coming from the U.S. government. The CIA has even declassified documents which talk about these things. From uh, Princeton University had a lab for nearly 30 years run by the former dean of engineering looking at some of these psychic phenomena. So that's one implication is that we have these psychic abilities, even if they're subtle. Another is one you mentioned, which is that our consciousness doesn't die when our body dies. The consciousness survives. And I think even beyond that is the notion that we are fundamentally interconnected as part of the same underlying consciousness. So this, this notion that we're separate, which is what I always thought was the case, 
is really just the way we, we perceive the world with our eyes. But at the level of consciousness, there seems to be a connection. Mm-hmm. It's been said that um, with that, there is a power to group consciousness when it's been tested. And I can't quote exactly where, but when a lot of people think the same thing, uh, maybe a very positive thing or uh, meditate on peace, that it has a, an effect way beyond the, uh, just the group that's having the meditation, that it has a ripple effect upon the more general population. Have you uh, heard about that? I have heard of that idea, and I've heard of groups that get together and meditate, and there's a correlation between events in the world, and there seems to be a tight correlation there. To me, the strongest evidence that's been studied over and over again for group intention is – it's related to what was done at Princeton and their studies using machines that are called random number generators. So these are just computers mm-hmm. that will spit out a zero and a one over and over again in a random fashion. So when you look okay. at a really long string of these zeros and ones, um, we end up with about 50% ones and 50% zeros. What the experimenters have done is place these machines all over the world and they measure what happens to the zeros and ones when there's a major global event. So like, around 9-11 or Princess Diana's death, some events that we know will, will focus people in a certain direction. And then the experimenters measure the zeros and ones that are just naturally flowing all the time. What they find is that around these big events, the machines start to behave slightly non-randomly, meaning it's not 50-50 zeros and ones. If we use statistics, we see that it's more ones and zeros beyond chance. And the way that it's been interpreted is that Something about collective focus on a certain thing is affecting the behavior of these machines. Okay, let's let's if you don't mind, let's talk to uh, let's talk about some of the uh, uh, specific uh, psychic phenomena, if you will, um, or exercises that are are done uh, for the for our listeners. Uh, maybe uh, maybe you can define them and then talk about what you've learned. Uh, let's start with re- remote viewing, and I know that. Um, Having spoken to a lot of remote viewers and seen a lot on, uh, you know, YouTube and Gaia and places like that, that these people have done, you know, there's not this time travel, which I want to get into, but remote viewing where people have been able, you know, they're given coordinates and they're actually able to physically describe somebody they're talking to. And it could be somebody from the now or in the future or in the past even. Tell us about what you learned about remote viewing, kind of what it is and then how the uh, hypothesis that you have was kind of uh, proven through uh, the research that you've done, because now the documents are declassified from the CIA on it. Remote viewing is the ability to perceive something, even though you're not there physically. So you're not seeing it with your eyes and it's something that you've never seen before with your eyes, but yet with the mind, people are able to access something that seems far away and even draw it out with a degree of accuracy. So the U S government used this, it's basically a psychic spying technique uh, for national security. And it was used during the cold war. And like you said, the CIA has actually recently declassified some of the documents, which I was able to include um, in my book. And they very explicitly say that remote viewing is a real phenomenon. So when we look at the government's program, I think that's one powerful example. And the fact that they had a program for more than 20 years and continued to fund it, I think that speaks volumes on its own. Um, but, mm-hmm. Beyond that, um, Princeton University ran over 600 trials at their lab um, and and showed that it was real. And there have been a number of other researchers that it's all converging on this idea that, yes, consciousness somehow is 
we're able to use our consciousness to access something that is far away, not only in distance, but as you said, also in terms of time, that we can access something with our mind that is in the past or in the future, and it's far away physically. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people, uh, they want to learn how to do these things, whether it's remote viewing or becoming more psychic or channeling, whatever. You know, I take a, a spiritual unfoldment class. I didn't have any designs about becoming more psychic or intuitive or becoming a channel, whatever. Some people in the class want that, but I've noticed that my telepathic muscles, if you will, have gotten strengthened uh, by just being in the class. Um, my understanding of uh, remote viewing is that um, it's uh, mathematically based. You're given coordinates, and then you go kind of track down. Uh, you're given blind coordinates, and then you have to tell your you know, supervisors or whatever, since it's military, you know, what you see, what you perceive. And it could be an event in the pe- location, an event in the past, the present, the future, a different planet, whatever. What's, what's your uh, uh, experience with this, Mark? That's exactly right. That's in terms of the research. That's what I've seen as well, where the remote viewer isn't given any clues about what is at the location. All they're given is the coordinates, and they're asked to describe what they what they see with their mind. And typically, the remote viewers go into a trance-like state and are trained to try to quiet their monkey mind, to try to mm-hmm. quiet the chatter in the brain. And then some of this information seems to come in, and they'll describe in general terms what is coming in. And often it matches what is actually at the coordinate. And like you say, sometimes it's, it's not only what's there in the present, but what was there in the past or what will be there in the future. Okay. Um, you, in your book, you mentioned um, kind of a Newtonian, uh, the Newtonian perspective on science. For our listeners, what, what is that and what, what, what are the flaws in it and the new way of thinking? Newtonian physics is has been very useful for science and just everyday living because it explains a lot of what we see in the world today. If you drop an apple and it falls to the ground, we can use Newtonian physics to explain that there's a gravitational force that pulls the apple down effectively. And so it explains basic, basic things like that. And it's done a good job of doing that. The problem is that reality doesn't work exactly in line with Newtonian physics. There's, there's a whole other realm that is much more specific but it's at the level of the very microscopic, so we don't see it with our eyes. And this is called the quantum realm, quantum physics. There's a whole other area that's been around for about 100 years that is extremely counterintuitive, but is a more accurate picture of reality, whereas Newtonian basic physics is only an approximation. And the reason that I draw that comparison in the book is that Mm -hmm. when we're trying to develop a picture of reality and who and what we are, the approximation is an approximation. It's not an exact picture. And that's why looking at the quantum realm, which ends up getting into areas that are completely counterintuitive but proven, that is critical to do if we really want to understand reality. Okay. Um, what is your definition for, again, for our listeners, um, quantum physics? People hear the term being thrown around and they hear string theory and all this stuff. And they're, they're really like, oh, okay, I got to go to work now. Or, uh, you know, the game's on. So, <laughs> you know how it is. What, what is quantum physics for the layman? So that so give them a definition so they can relate to it. It's an area of physics, generally speaking, that, that deals with the ultra-small scales of reality. And one phenomenon that is, that is highly characteristic of quantum physics is known as entanglement. And it's the okay. idea that you can have two particles. These are physical things. 
that are physically separate from each other. And by affecting one, the other one that's far away mirrors it at the same exact instant, which is suggesting that the particles, even though they're far away, have some kind of a connection or they're entangled. That's where the term comes from. That's one of the biggest findings. Okay. How about when um, somebody, you know, writes a song and then the same songs are being written across the globe somewhere, or somebody writes a book or a movie or whatever, has an idea on something and someplace else it's being, without being, I don't mean the idea is being stolen, but it's kind of being birthed at a similar time. To me, that's a proof of there's a global consciousness and things are kind of floating around out there and different people could bring them in if they access them, allow themselves to access their um, consciousness to these, possibilities. I, I, I know I didn't articulate that that well, but could you talk to us a little bit about that? I know exactly what you mean, and it's something that is, is often theorized, that these events that are occurring basically simultaneously in, in different places that are physically separate, uh, but they, and yet they occur at the same time, can that be tied to this quantum entanglement that we see at the ultra-small scales? And Dr. Dean Radin, who's a scientist in this realm, he wrote a whole book called Entangled Minds, which gets to this idea that mm-hmm. you're suggesting, which is that we might be connected at the level of consciousness, and that could explain potentially these more macro events. These are things that we can see and document, and it might be due to this underlying um, structure of reality. Okay. Let's uh, I'll throw a couple more, and then we'll move on, because I want to talk about AI in a minute. But um, tell us about um, how this view of consciousness uh, how dreams and precognitive dreams become different and have more meaning now. So the way I think about dreams is that they are still, they're just a state of consciousness, but they're an altered state in that when I said that I'm speaking to you right now, that I, that consciousness is still present during the dream. It's like witnessing the dream, but it's just in a different state. So the content of what is being experienced during the dream is different, but it's like an altered state of consciousness. What is shown in a number of studies, and, and mostly anecdotally, is the, the idea that during the dream state, we sometimes can access the future before the future is known by anybody. So that means the person has a dream about something, and then maybe the next day or sometime in the future after the dream, that event happens in striking detail. Mm-hmm. So, it's, again, this idea that consciousness is outside of time, and maybe in this dream state, we are able to access it in some cases. Some, um, I've been taught by various teachers that when we sleep and we dream, that our, we actually, our consciousness leaves our physical body and goes kind of out there during the night, and then we come back and it kind of reconnects. That's like if you, the, if you ever wake up and you can't move, that's because you haven't really kind of re uh, landed back into your body. I don't know what that's called. Have you heard of this phenomena, Mark? I've heard of it. And I've heard of it referred to as sleep paralysis where the consciousness mm-hmm. exists, but the body isn't really moving. And, and I've mm-hmm. heard of this idea that consciousness leaves the body at night. Some people call it astral travel or out of body mm-hmm. right. experiences. Um, and like the Monroe Institute specializes in helping people achieve these mm-hmm. dates and learn how to control it better. From my standpoint, I I hear about it anecdotally all the time, and I think it's something that needs to be studied a bit more to to fully understand what is happening. I think at the very least we can say that during the dream state, 
anyone listening who's ever had a dream, we know that it's a different state of consciousness. So that I think raises a lot of questions and, and I'm open to the idea that it, it has to do with, with perhaps out of body experiences or some kind of other realm that our consciousness accesses. Mm-hmm. And I love your perspective because you're coming from a materialism uh, world and business and everything. And you're actually saying, well, wait a minute, let's, let's consider this stuff and let's put it through the filter of testing and let's research it properly. And then you're, you are basically sharing your findings, which are, I think eye opening to some people and matter of fact to others. But I think it's important because a lot of people who are holding a lot of uh, important positions may not think of things the way that they could think of things. And it could really change the way we live with that in mind. Let's talk about two other areas here. One is time and time travel. And the, the fact that, you know, we see time in our rational mind, or I don't know if it's our brain or what, but as a, uh, you know, a continuum, uh, and really what we're what I've kind of been taught, though, I, it's hard to process this for me and for a lot of people is that time is uh, everything's happening. Time can be bent and everything's kind of happening at the same time. And there's different dimensions where different things can happen, different results and all that. I'm throwing a lot of a big mess at you, Mark. Please unpack that. Mm-hmm. Sure. So time is something that I think we interpret and we interpret it based on memory. So when I, when I think about my day, I can remember what happened in the morning leading up to the evening, and I can project what will happen in the future. And the way my brain interprets that is that there is a past leading to the present moment, which leads to the future. That, that chain, which is sometimes called linear time, it moves mm-hmm. in a line, past and present to future, I put that, I question that now, especially because of some of the precognitive studies where consciousness seems to know something that has not been, uh, an event that hasn't happened yet. It's like reaching forward into the future or like we talked about with remote viewing, accessing the past with consciousness. And, and now I have kind of come to this perspective that I think is in, perhaps impossible for our human mind to understand. Like we can't fully grasp it, but it seems to be true. The idea that all there actually is is an ever-present now. And if we think about our own experience, we think about the past. I can recall what I ate this morning for breakfast, and it's very vivid right. to me. However, that is a memory that is occurring right now, as vivid as it seems. I have never been to the past. I've only experienced a memory of the past in the present moment. And that mm-hmm. would apply to anything that I could think about in the past. And it applies to any potential thing that I imagine in the future. Thing is always occurring in the moment of now. And I think something, that's kind of what our reality is. There's some kind of a simultaneity where things are happening simultaneously. And I don't think our, our brains can wrap our, our heads around it, so to speak. Okay. How about, um, I don't know if you want to touch on this or not. I'll, let, I'll leave it up to you. The, the notion that there's different dimensions. Uh, also, what that like a lot of folks say, we're in the third dimension and it's very dense. And then there's a fourth dimension, a fifth dimension where you can go to for healing. And people who do astral travel and things like that, there's people who claim to they move up and down through different dimensions. And that we are, you know, when people pass, the physical body dies and the consciousness pass. A lot of the consciousness goes to uh, different different dimensions, and that's why sometimes you may think you see you know, getting a message from somebody who passed or something that they supposedly have to kind of work really hard to squeeze themselves back into the third dimension to communicate with us. 
because they're no longer um, in the human body. I think the best direct evidence we have for that is the near-death experience. And these are instances where a person is in some kind of extreme like physiological trauma. So they might be in cardiac arrest where their heart stops, there's no blood flowing to the brain after a certain amount of time. And yet people are describing lucid memories, logical thought processes that are occurring during this time. So it's like the consciousness is functioning even though the body's not. And what is often described, and and this also includes out-of-body experiences where the person feels like they're out of their body, they're seeing things from a vantage point above their body, and sometimes those things are verified as being accurate. But they'll talk about entering other realms sometimes, like it's a different world almost. Mm -hmm. And perhaps those are all different dimensions that are being experienced once consciousness isn't tied to the body. Now, you uh, referenced uh, the gentleman who wrote the book about, um, you know, we don't die. I, I, forgive me, the, the, the name of the book escapes me, but there is a, an afterlife or something something like that. And there's been a, an idea that uh, a lot of uh, people in the scientific and medical community have debunked, uh, attempted to debunk uh, near-death experience and saying, no, when you die, also you don't go through a tunnel, there's no light tunnel, that's just the brain on different synapses doing this crazy thing. How do you counter what they're saying uh, first of all, I don't understand why they want to like squash all of that. And secondly, what do you say to show them this demonstrate proof that that is incorrect, actually, because there is pretty decent proof of uh, near death experiences and this whole thing with the light and the tunnel and all of that, even though everybody experiences something, uh, according to studies, something different. There are some similarities. And like you say, the, the conventional perspective is that, yes, people do have memories of these experiences, but the only reason they have them is due to uh, chemicals in the brain, that the brain is somehow right. hallucinating the experience. It's not a real thing. And I would argue that there are a number of reasons why that is not a great argument. First of all, it's important to acknowledge that's just a hypothesis that is not proven. And when we look at many of the explanations that are, that are more physiologically based, meaning that we can explain the near-death experience due to chemicals in the brain, where there's maybe more of one chemical or lesser of another, and that explains why the person hallucinates. The problem is that all of those chemical explanations, they might be able to explain something that sounds like part of the near-death experience. Like maybe it's when people describe feeling peace and love, they can say, oh, well, that's due to a chemical that is secreted by the brain that causes you to feel like you have peace and love. The problem is that there are a number of other things in the near-death experience that are not reported with these other chemicals like endorphins or oxygen or carbon dioxide. And one of those is, is uh, the life review where people talk about reviewing their whole life and seeing it right. in a flash where they experience their life from their perspective and from the perspective of other people and they're judging themselves for how they acted. That isn't something we see in, in many other cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess the biggest issue that uh, I think is in front of us as a as a as a world right now on the planet, uh, beyond you know, there's environmental issues, uh, but AI. Um, and I, I saw a commercial with Common, the the rapper and actor, the other day, touting you know how great AI, AI, AI. And I, I think that you know there are a lot of good things about technology, particularly AI in terms of making our lives easier, but we have to be real careful uh, when they, when, when transhumanism becomes something that is being promoted, you know, when you start uh, messing with the biology, 
uh, of people and replacing it with technology, what, when does that stop? When does the humanity, the biology come out of the human and the technology take over? Because to me, that's when it's over. What, what are your thoughts on uh, AI, Mark? AI is something I see a lot in my professional life. At Sherpa, mm-hmm. we deal with cutting-edge technologies, and AI is hot in, in basically every domain, sure. which is a, it's a way to automate processes that, that right now take a long time. So there's economic benefit to that. The, sure. the question that I think you're alluding to and which I hear often is, at what point do those machines start to really supplant human beings because they are more uh, technologically capable than us, and they start to have feelings and want to maybe take over the world? And there are shows like Westworld, which get into some pretty right. doomsday scenarios. The question that I don't think is asked often enough, in my, from my perspective, is it's really a question of consciousness. At what point, if ever, can a machine develop new consciousness? And, and based on the way that I look at consciousness now, again, I don't think consciousness is something that pops out of the brain. It's not something that pops out of physical matter. Using that logic, I would argue that we can't create new consciousness through a machine. We can create a machine that is very technologically advanced and, and maybe it could do things that are, are not good for society, or maybe it can do things that are very beneficial, but those things that it does will depend on the programmer, which is a human being that has a consciousness. So this is actually an argument that's being made by uh, Federico Fagin, who is one of the original inventors of the microprocessor, a very credible person in the, in the, in this world of, of machine learning. Mm-hmm. And he has the same perspective, which is that consciousness doesn't come from physical matter. So the danger is not as much in the machines, but it's in how we program the machines. Let me, let me take that a step further because I think I was uh, alluding to something a little bit different. I, you know, to me, whatever you do to the machine, it's still a machine and it's hard to put consciousness in a machine. And so ultimately they'll get something to some type of, even if it's an artificial consciousness to, based on human behavior or whatever, but maybe it's more behavioral than consciousness. My concern is when they start messing around with people, where they put the technology, the AI technology in people to make them smarter, faster, bigger, stronger. You know, they're already cloning one of these uh, champion polo guys. All his ponies are, are cloned. The cloning is one thing, but then what if you start messing around with uh, technology being injected, inter- interacting with the human or the animal part of it, and then at what point does that become too much where the machine starts taking over the people, transhumanism, and the animals, and then there is less and less of a need for flawed, weaker, stupider people because the machines can start to pretty much take over. And who then is going to defend consciousness? Hmm. Well, Elon Musk is working on this. He has a startup called Neuralink which is mm-hmm. supposed to be a wizard hat for the brain, which is sort of like machinery that can enhance our own capabilities as a human. Right. And I do think it, it poses all kinds of ethical questions, but still, no matter what we do to the physical body, it is, it is simply affecting the vehicle of consciousness. The consciousness mm-hmm. itself is, is basically is unaffected because it's not dependent on the physical, but the way in which we experience the physical world would, would shift if that kind of technology became prevalent and would probably create a society in which the experiences that consciousness is having would be very different. Right. That's, that's what I'm getting at. And then it becomes like it's not true consciousness because it's machine um, 
impacted by the machines. Well, it would still be consciousness. It would just be experiences that are different. The consciousness mm-hmm. is, is having a different experience because that physical experience is being enhanced by a third-party technology in addition to the physical biology. All right. Let me put it to you this way, then I'll, I'll let the point go. Uh, at what point do you think that the, or is there a danger with going too far and getting AI? Does, does AI have a can, – can it get out of hand? I think absolutely. It has a, the possibility to get out of hand, and it, 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 it comes down to really the responsibility of the inventors and those who are bringing these technologies to market and being very careful about. Okay, great. Um, how has all of this experience, this journey, impacted you as a person and you and your work? As a person, it has affected the way I look at meaning in life. I was completely a materialist. I wouldn't have called myself a materialist back then, but now in hindsight, I realized that my worldview was dependent on this idea that I am conscious because of my brain. There's chemical reactions going on in my skull, and that is what is producing my awareness right now. And if you take that out further, it implies that when the body dies, when the brain stops functioning, then my consciousness is gone. There's no memories. There's no feelings. And therefore, once you die, it's over. So for me, it was difficult, if not impossible, to come up with any meaning in life beyond just trying to rationalize. In the end, I would always come back to this picture of, well, the brain's going to turn off and there won't be consciousness, so it doesn't really matter. And even though I still went about my daily life like a normal person, in the back of my mind, I had this kind of nihilism because I understood Mm -hmm. these are the implications of materialism, whether we like to talk about it or not, and that's what science is promoting. So now now that I'm calling materialism upside-down thinking and and really talking about the Mm -hmm. reverse, I, I view life as being much more meaningful. And that's been a huge shift for me, and it was not an easy one in the beginning. It really took me time to absorb it and, and say, wait a second, I was really wrong. And it was a disorienting process. Now, uh, have you gotten a, a pushback uh, from the scientific community trying to debunk everything because uh, they're just trying to defend uh, the old school thinking? The book has only been out a few months as of the date of this recording. So I haven't heard from too many of, of the debunkers yet. Um, I, I will say in the process of, of outreach with my publicist, we, we, we reached out to one of the mainstream scientific outlets and got a, a very negative response without – the person hadn't even read the book, but it was a senior editor and, and was just right. resistant to the ideas, even though we sent some of the scientific papers that I cited. And basically the response was something like, well, unless my 35 years in journalism and science have been an exercise in delusion – um, so I think there is kind of this, this feeling that science has been established and they, these ideas are really challenging to those people. It will be interesting to see what happens over time as the mainstream hopefully becomes forced to look at some of these findings. And I think that's, a, that's great because what I think is happening is that a lot of people are, um, there's two types of people now and we're starting to see kind of a, a, a separation in human behavior in that there's people who are, as people get more aware there's a lot of people becoming more and more open and seeing a lot that ha- they realize that hasn't been at the forefront, psychic capabilities, the, the ability to bend time, uh, remote viewing, all these things. And then there's another group of people and uh, they're just digging in and saying no. And I think 
one of the reasons why is exactly what that editor was saying. Oh, this would make my 35 years of uh, doing my job been a complete waste of time. So a lot of people would rather be, and I come across them also, uh, where they'd rather be uh, uninformed than admit that, wow, maybe, maybe what I was, I would rather know the truth. Let's put it that way. The truth sets you free. A lot of people, they want to know what they know. And that's it. They don't want to think of a new world. They don't want to think beyond what they've been told because God forbid what they've been told is outdated information. And that's, I think, human nature. And so people like you, you've got to keep doing what you're doing because you are dealing with a very smart scientific and business community. And they're the ones who really need to know that there, there are other ways to look at the world and that consciousness rules. Yeah, I agree with you, and that's why I felt so compelled to actually write a book and not just keep the research in my own head, is that I think there is a real need, and there's a need in those communities that you mentioned, the business world, the scientific world, and I, I wrote the book with the intent of appealing to a wide range of audiences so that these ideas can get out there, and really the question should be about the strength of the data, not on whether or not we like the ideas, but if a skeptic can disprove every example in my book, then, then great. But I haven't seen that yet. I've just seen kind of a dismissal rather than an actual examination by many of the debunkers. Right. Well, keep doing what you're doing. Um, and great job. I commend you, Mark. Um, tell, us every, tell everybody where they can find the book, where they can learn more about you, and where the name of the book is The End of Upside Down Thinking, Dispelling the Myth that the Brain Produces Consciousness and the Implications for Everyday Life. I remember when the publicist sent this to me, I'm like – really, I got to go through this. And then I went through it. I'm like, yep. You know, cause I started to see where you were going and it's like, Hey, this is what I think. So I've got to have them on the show, but tell us Mark where awesome. people can find out more about you and learn more about your book and your thinking. And also tell us what's next for you. Well, my website is a good place to start. It's markgober.com, M-A-R-K-G-O-B-E-R.com. My book and end to upside down thinking is, is described on my website, but it's also available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and many of the traditional bookstores. In terms of what is next for me, I am working on a podcast um, in which I interview many of the scientists and practitioners that I describe in my book. I'm working with some very mainstream producers, which is, I think, a hopeful will get the message to a, a general audience. And I've already recorded interviews with about 50 people. And so oh, I think I'm really excited to get it out. We're just trying to edit it properly and make sure it has the, the right launch strategy. So we'll be announcing all of that through my website and through social media as soon as we have launch dates. Well, make sure you, uh, you know, you get some of the folks like, uh, I'll give you an example. He's been on the show a few times. I don't know if you're familiar with Dr. Ahmet Ghazwami. I know he's, who he is. I have not yeah, spoken with him yet. Yeah, he's written a, a lot of books on quantum physics. In fact, his book on quantum physics is the number one book used in universities across the country. But my, I guess my point is, if you can, keep in mind uh, people who are already into understanding consciousness uh, versus, you know, some in the scientific community that need to, you know, you need to convince. Get the people who are already there also. I think that would be great. Yep, I agree with you. And I've actually interviewed Paul Selig as well. The people oh, who are fantastic. actually experiencing cool. these things. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I think it'll great. be fun. Awesome. Well, listen, I'm so pleased that you came on the show, and I think you did a great job in the book, and I wish you all the best. And uh, keep doing the great work, Mark. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, and thanks for all the great work that you do too. All right, cool. 
All right, everybody. Our special guest, Mark Gober. Check out his book. Uh, I think he's doing fantastic things. And, uh, you know, we're going to get that message out there about consciousness uh, one way or the other, whether it's through the guy's guy's way, through the scientific community, through the business community. Just we're going to keep working at it. So that's our show for this evening. As I had mentioned earlier, um, this is a uh, I don't want to say it's an extra show, but I've been doing a lot of shows lately because the format's going to be shifting for Guys Guys Radio. We're back again uh, this Wednesday. We've got a, uh, a men's expert, uh, Rob Kandel. He wrote a, wrote a book called Unhidden, and it's about kind of the shadow side of men and why we have to recognize that. So we've got more and more stuff to think about, talk about, discuss on Guys Guys Radio. I really thank my audience, everybody, for hanging in there as we grow. And we've got a lot of fantastic guests coming up. In fact, I just booked uh, Neil Donald Walsh, who wrote uh, the Conversation of God books. And he's probably one of the best-known metaphysical uh, teachers uh, we have in the world right now. So I'm thrilled about that. And I'll have more information on that shortly. So anyhow, great show. Uh, I look forward to seeing you all, hearing you back, hearing me back here on Wednesday. Uh, and this time we're going to be on KCAA in uh, Southern California, uh, as well as on Speaker. And then we're going to be, of course, on iTunes and all the other platforms that we're on. So anyhow, thanks so much for being here. And I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Remember what I always like to say, guys, guys, finish first.